Howdy, folks. Today, we are going to talk about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. So, as we jump into our study and prepare our minds for the text, we're going to think about first why there was a need for a Savior to begin with. Well, in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of, the right of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So, as you probably know, there was an instruction given in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So we get into the next chapter in Genesis chapter 3, and we start at verse 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to desire to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. You jump down to verses 17 through 19. Unto Adam he said, this is the Lord, talking to Adam, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou, or dust shalt thou return. Now, obviously, if you read the whole account, there's more details. You, you know, you get to see that um, their eyes were open. You know, hey, all of a sudden, they're in the know, right? 
They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made aprons. And, you know, God is uh, communicating with them in the garden and they're trying to hide from God and hide from the Lord. I mean, there's a lot in the context. But the point of our lesson is there was a need for the Savior to come because death entered into the world. For us to live, for us to be eternal, we need our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you could take a lot from the accounts in, in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and then, of course, get going from there, what happened between Cain and Abel, and there's all kind of lessons. But for the point of our sermon today, uh, for our lesson today, our study today, death into the world, the need for a Savior came. And you may look back, you know, women look back and say, hey, look at what we've got to go through in childbirth and everything else. You know, another thing, if you want to be angry at Adam and Eve for more than, you know, having death enter in the world, I don't know why that's not enough. And the pain that comes along in childbirth and you want to get angry about the fact that, you know, labor is more difficult than God made. We don't have a paradise on earth. You can also get mad at them. And I need you to think about this just for a second. That you have to do laundry. Right? There's another one. Hey, I got to stop having these zingers in these lessons. So the need for a Savior comes to the world because death is here. Jesus comes with a purpose. Not just to deliver us from death, and that is obvious, right? But also, in 1 John 3, 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. What brought death in the world? Sin did. What's Jesus come to do? Of course, have us overcome death. But he also came to destroy sin. Think about this in the relationship there is to death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not him on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now, our Lord put on flesh and blood, comes into this world takes on death, takes on the devil, takes on sin, all of its relative, right? All of it ties together. And because he triumphed, we have the ability to put on immortality in the future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the quote-unquote resurrection chapter of the Bible, verses 50 through 57 the inspired Apostle Paul writes, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which give us up the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So with all of that in mind, we need a savior because sin brought death into the world. The devil giving the introduction to Eve, then Eve to her husband, and all that came about because of those events. 1 Peter 3, 18-20 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was up preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So we're going to be talking about this as we break it down a little bit. And there's some things that we'll get into next week that connect to this too, especially the, the anti-type that is mentioned uh, in verse 20, connecting into verse 21 about souls being saved by water and the anti-type of baptism to that. So just keep in mind, these lessons are going to go together, and you should already know this. If you're following our study in 1 Peter, it is one letter, and it all works together. So, our just Lord, suffering and dying for the unjust. Uh, there's a lot of scriptures that we could go to and that we could talk about in relation to each one of the things that we're going to address. And sometimes the hardest part, for me at least, and, and bringing about a study, bringing about a lesson, is I tend to want to use a lot of the scriptures when, you know, sometimes that gets repetitive and sometimes it's, it's a lot of information. So sometimes the more challenging thing is to break it down and choose something. It may be something that I haven't used as recently so as to give you something else to think about. So I'm going to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 28, where it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the First Testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, 
He sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. And by the way, this that's language that we're going to talk about next week, the figures of the true, the anti-type that's represented there, just to give you a little heads up. He said, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then he must have often suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Our just Lord offered himself as a sacrifice for the unjust to take away sins, to give the remission, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want you to think about the contrast of the just and the unjust. Just, just looking at a few scriptures and thinking it through, right? For example, there's a, 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 a conversion account in Acts chapter 10 of Cornelius and his household. And then the context really goes into chapter 11 as well, as Peter explains to the apostles how the Gentiles can be saved. On Acts 10, 22, in that context, they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man. Now, I want you to think about the language that's here. And one that feareth God, and of a good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into this house and to hear the words of thee. So a just man, one that feareth God, one that's of a good report, right? In Romans 2.13, context talking about hypocrisy, and then getting into the fact that the Gentiles were a law unto themselves and then back to hypocrisy. Romans 2.13 says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law should be justified. So when we're talking about a just person, we're talking about somebody that fears God, somebody of good reputation, someone that is a doer of the will of God. In Hebrews 10, 38, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So add to that, a just person is someone that lives by faith. And 1 Peter 3 and verse 12 says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears open their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So the righteous, just people are those whom God hears and they're the opposite of those that do uh, evil. And being righteous, being just, those are the scarcely or barely saved. But in 1 Peter 4.18, draw this, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? So righteous or just individuals are in contrast to the ungodly and the sinner. That is opposites of the two. You know, by, by just looking at some of, of these words, what it is to be just, what it means to be just, gives us some clarification of attributes 
of our Savior as well as what he just expect, expects rather of just people. And when I'm using verses like 1 Peter 3.12 or 1 Peter 4.18 that use the word righteous, it's the same Greek word in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 where it's talking about the just, dik ehos, it means equitable or innocent, holy, just, meet, righteous. Uh, that Strong's definition, Strong's number 13, uh, 42. So keep going with me here. Let, let's just think about it. Just, just for another moment, add a couple more things in here, okay? A just for the unjust. Jesus being the just sacrifice for the unjust. And 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8 talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, says, delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. I, I wanted to use this uh, particular verse, not only because it's the same Greek word there in 2 Peter 2 and verse 7, translated as just, and then in verse 8, righteous man and righteous all the same Greek word that we're talking about, the just in 1 Peter 3.18, but also to draw this thought into your mind. The just are vexed by the conduct of the wicked. That is, you know, you're wore down. You toil with it. You're oppressed by it. I want you to think about that. Jesus the Christ the righteous one, the holy one of God, an attribute of being just is to go through those emotions, those thoughts, and yet he still went to the cross in essence for people that cause him grief, both mentally and physically. Mm. Just people, righteous people, are those that do righteousness. 1 John 2 and verse 29. 1 John 3 and verse 7 points out the same thing. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So the righteous Lord, contrast to wickedness and everything else, he's a doer, he's an obedient, he is the faithful, he is all the things that represent attributes of just righteous individuals went to the cross for the opposite, right? And that is the opposite. When we read passages unrelated to uh, conduct, Matthew 5, 45 says, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Just and unjust is equal contrast to evil and good, or good and evil if you flip that around, right? When we look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Know ye not, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, effeminate, abusing themselves with mankind, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Who are unrighteous, unjust people? Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, people that covet, drunkards, etc. Right? Right? They are the opposite of godly individuals. So when we look at that and think about it, our just Lord, our righteous Lord, 
the Lord that does good, obeys his Father, went to the cross for those that are opposite to him, that we might have the hope of eternal life, because Jesus is righteous. In 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus wants to advocate for those that are contrary to his character, that we who have been converted and have been made righteous can come to him. And if you're listening to this and if you've yet to be converted, you may look in the mirror and you may see an unjust person, but if you look into Christ and you obey him, you will be as he is. Folks, that is wonderful. That is wonderful. The just for the unjust. It shows us how undeserving we are. It shows us that we, you know, we're, not, we're not in any way, shape, or form able to take away our own sins apart from Jesus Christ. These are wonderful, notable things. He died that he might bring us to God. The Gentiles in Ephesus were told this in Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law and commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you who were far off and to them that were not. Because of Jesus Christ, we can be brought to God. We can be reconciled, reconciliation with God. And 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We have the word of reconciliation because of Jesus who God chose to be the path of reconciliation between us and our Father. That's wonderful. Think about that. It's outstanding. When you think about that, it's the will of God that this is the case. In Romans chapter 5, you know, if you come back to that chapter, we looked at verses 17 through 21 uh, earlier. If you look at verses 8 through 10, it says, God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Looking forward a little bit into chapter six, you know, it's the death, burial, resurrection that brings about life. And ultimately Jesus is going to have to return again without the, uh, without the resurrection and Christ coming back to claim us and bring us to the Father. There is no salvation. So it all ties together. But it began, it began because the just Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to bring us to God the Father. In Colossians, the first chapter, 
verses 19 through 22 says it pleased the Father that in him, contextually Jesus, all fullness dwell, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in the earth or things in heaven, and you who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Folks, our Lord is the Lord of reconciliation. It is outstanding. It is wonderful, right? Now, as we kind of break down more of this text, after we talk about being brought to God to bring us to the Father, he was put to dead in, in death in the flesh, and we've already been talking about that. The next statement, but quickened by the Spirit. Quickened by the Spirit. This is something to think about. In Romans, the first chapter, the fourth verse, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. When we look into the text, when we look into what our Lord is saying, the work of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection of Christ, it has implications for us both in the spiritual now as well if we look a little bit uh, forward when we come to the future. In Romans, the sixth chapter, verses one through six, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not? So many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we shall walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So think about this, right? We're buried with him in baptism, and then like he was raised up, even so are we, baptism. So in Titus 3, 3 through 5, we ourselves are sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lusts, and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, as Christ was raised up from the dead, is how we are raised up spiritually out of the waters of baptism. And then thinking about that and carrying it into the future even, Romans 8 and verse 11 if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, that's figuratively speaking, because when we look at the scriptures and we think about what, you know, I don't mean to get off point here, but unfortunately, this is one of those subject matters that people just don't seem to understand. So I think I need to mention this. The indwelling of God is taught in the Bible and not just the Holy Spirit. And we also indwell God. 1 John 4.15 says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. So I'm just bringing that up to show you this is a figure of speech, okay? Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the, from the dead dwell in you, 
He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. When we look at being spiritually alive, when we look at being resurrected in spirit, and when we even think about the resurrection of Christ, that's both represented in the death, burial, and resurrection that occurs in baptism, we also look forward to in the end, right? All of it connects. So we look at Jesus who is put death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit, we are able to be reborn spiritually. We are able to be new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, by the word of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why baptism is to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19, by their authority. They're all involved. Well, from there, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So I want you to think about this. If you were to keep reading into chapter 4, you would get down to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to the God in the Spirit. Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison? Yes. To the people that are captive? Yes. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, where did Jesus go when he was dead for three days? Was he just in the tomb? No, no. We know it lasted three days, Luke 24, 46. He said to them, thus it is written, thus behold, Christ suffered to raise from the dead the third day. The third day. Well, where was he? I want to give you two things here. When Jesus was hung on the cross, Luke 23, 38 through 43 says, a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the male factors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, dost thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man had done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Verily I said unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So Jesus is on the cross and he says, Today he's going to be in paradise. Other language is used. In the King James Version, um, you know, this is one of the areas where there is a translation that definitely, definitely could be a whole lot better. It's in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. It says, David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always and before my face. He is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because I will not leave my soul in hell. That is an unfortunate translation because the Greek word there is Hades, Okay. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, should be Hades, neither will thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And down through verse 32, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in, should be Hades, 
neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. So when we look at that, Jesus went to Hades. Particularly in Hades, he went to paradise. So when we look at Luke 16, 19 through 31, we get a lot of information as to what's going on here. And just as you notice what we're going to read, there's going to be a conversation going on between these two areas in Hades, where here it's going to be called Abraham's bosom and the other torment, okay? So the idea that Jesus went and conversed, communicated the gospel to those that are in, as the text uh, says here, in prison, is presented to us by Jesus in Luke 16, not, the, not, not him going and preaching, but the actions that are possible and where they happen are presented to us here. And, and probably a lot of you who are listening to this, this podcast already know that. So when we're looking at this prison that is referenced here, which is, you know, if you look up uh, the Greek word phulakehe or something along that line, y'all know I'm not a Greek scholar, not trying to, def- to in any way act as though I can speak Koyan Greek. Well, it is a place or a condition, the time, as in a division of day or night, literally or figuratively, a, a cage, a hold, an imprisonment, a ward, a watch. Well, that's Hades. That is the waiting place until the judgment. Luke 16, 19 through 31 will bring this into light. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at, ga- at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, hey, guess what? Guess what? What, what do you think the word here is when we're looking at it? Do you think it's some different Greek word than what we were already uh, talking about in Luke 16 and verse 23. No, folks, it's the same word in Acts 2. This is Hades. And in Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments. That's why I referred to it as torment. Seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, so here you've got a conversation going on, okay? Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest the good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Now, I want you to know something, verse 26, lest you get some incorrect idea. Jesus didn't go and preach to these people who are in the hold of Hades so that they could repent. If you recall what we read in 1 Peter 4, 5, and 6, he went and preached unto them that are dead that they might be judged by the gospel, okay? So I'm going to come back here 
and pick up. Verse 26, beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify them, lest they come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Luke 16, 19 through 31 is what we must use to understand what's going on here in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20 through chapter 4 and verse 6. Repentance isn't possible. There's a great gulf. You're not going back and forth. And just to remind you, it's not Abraham's rules that are being laid down here. Jesus is talking about this conversation between Abraham and the rich man. It's Jesus who's saying it. He's not making any corrections here. He's not saying Abraham got this all wrong. When I die and I'm there for three days, I'm going to put a bridge here so that you can come back forth. No, it's done. It's over, okay? Get that and understand it. The answer then, as it is now, with slight variation, they had the word of God of old. We have the word of God now. That gospel, while we are alive, is what we must obey. However, those people whom have been dead and didn't know who Jesus was, the first time they meet him is not going to be on the judgment day. They've met him now. He has appeared to them as well as to the world of the living. And the gospel which we now have declared unto us in the flesh was declared unto them in the spirit. And that was done through the work of the Holy Spirit. Got it? It's not real complicated. And I, I love that it's written for us because it gives us how fair our Lord is. He wants everybody, even those sinners of the past, to know who He is. And when you fall down before Him, it's not because you didn't know who He was. So those people to whom the gospel was a mystery, it was revealed to them by Jesus through the Spirit. So he preached to those spirits, and our text tells us, it gives us some more information, which sometimes were disobedient. When once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So we're talking about people that have been dead for thousands of years. Jesus went into Hades and preached to them. The people going as far back as when the ark was preparing and only eight were saved by water. Well, in those days, I want you to think about what happened. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Genesis 6 and verse 13, God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Jesus went and preached to those people who died 
because of their disobedience in the past. And it's not that this was the first time they were ever going to get an opportunity. No, God was long-suffering. Our, our Lord hasn't changed. Our God hasn't changed. And Genesis 6, 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he also is flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. Well, he gave him 120 years. And Romans 2 and verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? 120 years. They weren't led to repentance. So 2 Peter 2, 5 says, Spare not the old world, but save Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly. The attribute of our God is that he is not willing that any should perish. We read in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Verse 15 of 2 Peter 3, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, so according to the wisdom given unto you, hath written unto you. That's in the context of the end of the world that is to come. God is long-suffering. He wants all to be saved. He gave them that opportunity before the 120 years and during the 120 years, and then they were judged and destroyed because of their sins. They are now in torment in Hades, awaiting the judgment. Jesus went and told him who he was and what the gospel has to say. During the days that they were alive, going all the way back, where eight souls were saved by water. Genesis chapter 7, 5 through 7. Noah did according to unto all that the Lord commanded him. That separated him from the rest of humanity, right? And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters upon the earth. Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. That's the eight souls that were saved by water. Now we're going to talk about next week, verse 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism down doth also save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Christ. We're going to tie these thoughts together next week. I didn't want to try to combine them this week. Uh, even though I could have, it would have just been a little bit of a longer uh, lesson. I don't think it would have been extreme, but, but I wanted to give you time to soak in the one and then be able to bring the points together uh, a little bit without having to rush through them too much. Now, the language that we're, we're talking about in 1 Peter 3.20, eight souls saved by water. When you look at translations in the Bible, the same Greek word, uh, John 10 and verse 9 uses the word by. So think about it like this. Jesus said, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So just as we're saved, saved by Christ, saved by water or through could also be translated through in John 3, 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In Acts 15, 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So just as we are saved by Christ and through Christ, the language here, eight souls were saved 
by water. Now, when we get into verse 21, we're going to talk about what an antitype is, because when we look at that particular word and break it down and think about how it's used, the like figure uh, that it is there, it is an antitype. It represents a counterpart, right? Because you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Eight souls were saved by the ark from the water. Yes, yes, that's correct. The like figure, or as it should be, it would be better understood, the anti-type, I think, I don't remember all the translations that use the word anti-type there. Uh, I'm pretty confident the New King James Version uses the word anti-type there because that more readily presents what that means. But listen, I'm getting ahead of myself. That is going to be what we're going to talk about next week. Water... Uh, that that was of the flood is being used here as an antitype, wherein to baptism now doth also save us. This is what we're going to talk about next week. The antitype or the like figure, wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the pilling away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So listen, we're going to talk about baptism next week. We're going to talk about the antitype. We don't want to forget that the only reason we are talking about salvation, the gospel, whether it's preached to the living of the dead, or anything that has hope for us is because Jesus the righteous died that we might be saved from our sins. Left up to man, you get what happened in the garden. Left up to Jesus, you get eternal life. So as much as there is fascinating things to talk about in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, don't lose the greater point that Christ suffered for our sins. He was put to death in the flesh. He was quickened by the Spirit. Don't forget that we are able to be spiritually reborn because of that. And we will be resurrected and spend eternity in heaven if we are faithful to the will of God because Jesus died for us. No other plan, no B plan, no great preacher, no great man, no great gift, nothing else could do what Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, did for us. So folks... I hope you will think on that. And and I know probably in this lesson, more people than not will find the fact, if you aren't already aware of it, that Jesus went and preached in Hades to be the more interesting thing. Now, that may be the more interesting thing, but it's not relevant to you because you are alive and can hear the gospel now. You're not like them whose fate was sealed. So as much as it's fascinating, please, for the sake of your soul, think about what Jesus did and how that's going to turn into our discussion next week about baptism. And that's just one part of what God says we need to do to be saved. One of many. And, And if we're to make a list, it wouldn't be five things. You know, If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, I've done plenty of talking about things that save us 
And, you know, you've got your five steppers and one steppers and three steppers. And when you look at the Bible, there's so much more than, than that to it. You know, things like Romans 8, 24 and 25, we're saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth, what did he hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? Not too many people talk about how we're saved by hope, right? Because, hey, that doesn't fit their numbered system of things. Uh, in Matthew 10, 22, Jesus talking to his disciples, says, you should be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth till the end shall be saved. Now, that's not something that is frequently talked about, that endurance saves you. And on and on and on we could go with verses that teach us what save us. And then even though there are things that don't, statements that don't have the word save or salvation in them, we're saved by obeying all the instructions of God. So think about how innumerable that can be, just even on a daily basis, by living faithful toward our salvation. That's a lot. I want you to take it to heart, mind, and hopefully if all goes according to plan, next week we'll close out chapter 3 and talk about that anti-type. And that is fascinating, but again, in what is fascinating, we don't want to lose the point because next week we're going to be talking about baptism and be talking about uh, what that means and we're going to be talking about the resurrection and we're going to be talking about Jesus on the right hand of God and His authority. So... Plan on that, and I thank you so much for listening. Until Tuesday, if all goes according to plan, I will say goodbye and be back then. Thank you.